Hi friends, how are you? Welcome back to Murder Minded. Today, we'll be talking about the story about the brutal murder of Veronica Boza. There's not much to be known about Veronica's early life, other than that she was born on March 31st, 1971 in Milan, Italy, and studied at the University of Turin, majoring in psychology, and she also went to the Vol State Community College in Tennessee, majoring in communications. She had moved to Bridgewater, Tennessee after the end of a 16-year marriage with her 9-year-old son, Jordan. Bridgewater is just outside of Nashville, and it's a peaceful, quiet little town. You know, the ones where people, I didn't think anything like that could happen here, and don't lock their front doors. She moved to Nashville initially to fulfill a dream of being a music producer and achieve that. She instantly fell in love with country music upon moving to America and wanted to make it her career. Four of the biggest projects that Veronica had worked on and is known for producing are the show Can We Duet, Gary Allen, Live from the House of Blues, Blake Shelton Live, It's All About Tonight, and the 2009 CMT Music Awards. It would be on the set of Can We Duet that Veronica would meet. Guys, I'm so sorry. She would meet her new boyfriend, Brian Robinson. It was weird because I watched an episode of uh, Nightmare Next Door on this on uh, Discovery Plus, And they said her boyfriend's name was Chris. But the more I kept doing research, it was Brian Robinson. And so I'm not sure where Discovery Plus got their information. But unfortunately, his name is Brian Robinson. So we're sticking with the Brian's. So also, too, Can We Duet was basically a country version of American Idol, but with duos, um, and only lasted for about two seasons. Veronica was described as, quote, a gentle soul with a huge heart. Her good friend, Kendall Bard, who also worked with her, would say, quote, whenever she saw you, she would just sweep you off your feet and give you this huge hug, like squeeze you. She gave the best hugs. She really took care of her crew. On August 29th, Veronica's boyfriend, Brian, was heading towards her house to pick her up for an afternoon drive. He pulls up and notices Veronica's garage door is wide open and she's nowhere to be found. He then goes inside and finds her dead in a pool of blood in the living room and the house was in total disarray. Cops would arrive around 1230 and a homicide detective would be brought down on site about five minutes later to work the case. So based on cell phone records, Veronica was alive at 12.08, but would be dead by 12.20. So ultimately, it took the killer 12 minutes to get in and out, which that seems fast. That seems very, very quick to me. Also, I just wanted to include the times because I, I think it's incredibly important. And I think it's so like amazing that we're able to do that. Um, and like pull cell phone and data records to be able to really pinpoint down to like a specific minute when someone's time of death was. After talking to police, they found it odd that Brian didn't perform any medical assistance to Veronica upon seeing her dead on the floor. He also weirdly washed his hands before police arrived. So yes, I will admit that is a little odd but also, think about this, though. If you go in and she has, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but four gunshot wounds and she's lying in a pool of her own blood, 
do you think CPR is going to be of any help? But also, too, you have to think about it. His fingerprints would be on her body. And obviously, like, throughout, you know, alibis and, you know, background checks, he would probably be eliminated. But it's weird, but also at the same time, kind of not entirely. In the garage, Veronica's car had the driver's side door open and her personal belongings were scattered around the floor. This seemed like evidence of a struggle and that Veronica was able to break free from her attacker and run inside. There was very evident signs of a struggle as there were items strewn all over the floor, knocked from the the kitchen table, kitchen counter and dining room table as well. Curtains would be torn down and be laying across the floor. Cops would notice that there were I did say this earlier, I'm sorry. Four different bullet wounds on Veronica's body. Two in the head and two on her lower body. Which ruled out the potential idea of a suicide. Oddly enough, they found no shell casings at the scene. So the killer took extreme caution in that 12 minutes to clean up following her death. There was also no weapon found at the scene either. Her phone was missing too and the assumption kind of duh, was that the killer took it with them. Tracing her phone would lead to a dead end. The phone showed that it left the home, but then the trail stopped. So either the phone died or was intentionally shut off. Investigators would also be told by a neighbor that they saw a light-colored SUV parked in a nearby alley to Veronica's house, and following the murder, it was gone. Cops were quick to talk to the person who called 911, Brian Robinson, He was incredibly upset and distraught over his girlfriend's death and told police that they'd only been dating for a few months and were planning an upcoming trip away. Cops were able to solidify and confirm Brian's alibi that he was at a friend's house and then he was on the phone in the car with Veronica and then later a friend. He told them Veronica was the love of his life and he proceeded to then tell the cops that Veronica was in the midst of a bitter custody battle and divorce proceedings with her ex, or soon-to-be ex, Tim. Police learned that the couple was in the last steps of finalizing their divorce and argued often about the custody of their son. Tim was a self-employed home remodeler and was going through a rough patch financially while Veronica's career was taking off super quickly and her salary and finances were skyrocketing as well. Folks... I might be smelling a motive. Oh, also, let me add this in too. She had life insurance. So Tim would only be the beneficiary on the policy when he was married to Veronica. So once the divorce got finalized, he wouldn't be entitled to the money. So let's just plant that there. Tim's visitation with his son was also reduced by the courts. So we got another motive. So another potential motive, too, would be to gain full custody of their son. Oddly, too, Veronica would tell friends that Tim would look her straight in the eyes while pointing at her and saying, quote, be careful. It's coming. Take that how you will. On the morning of her death, Veronica handed Jordan off to the church parking lot to Tim And his alibi that he would tell cops was that he picked up his son, went to his mom's house, and then ran out to go to the plumbing store and then the grocery store as well. 
Cops were told this alibi when they went to Tim's house to inform him of his almost ex-wife's death, and he was upset, but also more concerned as to how he would tell his son that her mo- his mother was dead. He would come down to the police station to make an official statement, and the cops told him that he was officially a person of interest. While Tim was talking to police, they'd request his phone records and confiscate his phone eventually. They started to get off a very off feeling and kind of suspicious feeling about him. Also, too, during the questioning, Tim didn't request a lawyer. Cops went to go see the last person who saw Veronica alive other than Tim, who was her priest. The priest said she was happy and in good spirits, and it wasn't unusual to see the couple hand off their child in the parking lot after Mass. On August 30th, detectives would start to verify Tim's alibi. He gave them the receipt for the grocery store in Greenbrier, Tennessee, The plumbing store was able to give surveillance footage to the cops, placing Tim at their store at the time of Veronica's murder, which would put him too far away from the scene of the murder. He was then eliminated as a suspect. Next, they would verify Chris's alibi. I'm sorry, not Chris, Brian. And they would talk to a clerk at the grocery store and verify that Brian was there at the time of the murder. And his car would also be searched and nothing inside of it that would tie him to the case. During the time of the alibi verifications, CSIs would come across one shell casing that the suspect forgot to take with them before leaving the scene, and this would prove to be immediately beneficial. So phone phone records were requested for all parties, so Veronica, Tim, and Brian. So nothing showed up with Veronica's phones, Veronica's phone that was suspicious, or Brian. Tim talked to someone several times, though, before and after the murder. A guy named Corey Kotham. When cops did a background check, they noticed that Corey had a sexual offense in Oregon and was out on parole, and his criminal history raised some red flags. Cops called Corey and asked him to come to the police station. He declines the offer to come down. Corey did come meet with cops at a parking lot at a grocery store for a more casual questioning. He tells cops that he was with a girlfriend, one of two at the time of the murder. Corey had previously lived with Veronica and Tim for a little while when they were married. He refused to consent to a DNA sample or give up his phone to access his call history, records, and messages. Cops then said that they were going to obtain a search warrant for a DNA sample and impounded his car, which had his phone inside. Police would also tell Corey that his phone records showed him in Veronica's neighborhood at the time of the crime, and he denied that he was involved in her murder. Also, his car matched the description that the neighbor had given cops of the SUV parked in the alley by Veronica's house. They didn't have any actual solid evidence, so they had to release Corey. Detectives would now call Jenny, his one of two girlfriends, to verify his alibi and she would also meet them in a grocery store parking lot rather than come down to the station for an official statement jenny would confirm that Corey was with her at the time of the homicide and would completely account for his whereabouts that day once cops looked over the cell phone data they realized that someone was lying Corey's cell phone data and location would show that he was near the scene when the homicide occurred as in like in Veronica's neighborhood. This unfortunately was still not enough to arrest Corey. 
They also noticed that Veronica's phone was following the same route as Corey's phone, so they deduced that there was a highly strong possibility he was at the scene and jacked the phone. On September 11th, Jenny would call the cops to meet up to get something off her chest to tell the truth and would be invited to the police station. She admitted that she lied in her initial interview and Corey was not with her. She woke up late in the morning that day and realized her car was gone along with Corey. Corey came home later in the afternoon and this confirmed that he was lying about his whereabouts that day. On Corey's phone, they would find a picture of a gun and learn that he kept a gun in his car in a water cooler bag. The gun wound up being Jenny's ex-husband's gun and he had confirmed it was missing. Jenny took this gun for protection and it was a 9mm the same that was used in the attack on Veronica. Later on, they would find this gun in the cooler in Corey's car and would get shell, shell casings from Jenny's ex to compare to the ones that, compare to the one they found at the scene. Jenny began to help the cops and call Corey because Corey was hiding out and planning to flee the country. So very suspicious. And so she helps cops track him down keeping him on the phone long enough so cops can track him and she's wearing a wire at the same time. He tells Jenny to get in touch with Tim and let him know what's going on. Hold on, hold on a second. Why are we looping Tim into this? This now suggested to cops that Corey didn't act alone. During this conversation, Jenny began to talk about Veronica's death And Corey would allude to the type of gun used to kill her, a fact that only the killer would know and wasn't published publicly. Detectives also started to look into Tim's business dealings and Veronica and Tim's finances. Tim was having massive financial troubles. Tim came to the financial advisor at Veronica's funeral and asked about the status of the life insurance policy which gave cops motive that insurance policy was the motive. This policy was worth about either $500,000 to $550,000. And he would offer $35,000 of that to Corey to kill Veronica. So motive in a minute? Full custody of his son, taking revenge on his wife for leaving him, and getting a huge sum of money when he was deeply in financial trouble. Tim would now be arrested for criminal homicide. Tim admits he lied in his initial interview with cops. Tim references the movie called Throw Mama from a Train, and the movie stars Danny DeVito and Billy Crystal. And basically the idea of it is that they had sort of a crisscross agreement that each person would kill someone in the other person's life to cause trouble super weird like what the hell like and i think in the movie it doesn't actually come to fruition um but just even the thought that that there's two people that were like yo you kill her i'll kill him we're all good Hearing him say this out loud, though, in the interrogation room interview was so odd that him and Corey were both in agreement to do this and that they were like, cool, sounds like a plan. Let's do it. Without 
thinking about the consequences. Tim was supposed to kill the ex-husband of one of Corey's girlfriends. I'm not sure if that ever happened or if Corey killing Victoria was basically the first domino to fall. Tim would later claim that he was kidding about the plot. But evidently, Corey wasn't and took it immensely seriously and killed Veronica. Corey refused to speak to the detectives, but Tim revealed enough to have them both suspected of premeditated murder. So this is what police believe happened the day of Victoria's death. Veronica, I'm sorry. Veronica took her son to church. She handed him off to Tim in the parking lot. Corey was in his car watching this all happen and follows Veronica home. And he turns off his phone before going into her house. He followed her into the, her, the garage. He approached her as she got out of the car. Scared her when she got out, got out. She fought him, ran into the house. He finally was able to grab her inside and overpower her and shot her four times. Both men were tried separately and Corey was found guilty of first-degree murder, and his ex, Nikki, would testify against him. Corey got no uh, life without parole, plus 25 years. Tim was found guilty for first-degree murder, premeditated, and got life in prison with the possibility of parole after 51 years. I think he was in his late 40s when he was convicted, so his life is essentially over if he was ever up for parole. Also, Corey booked a flight to Barbados very shortly after Veronica's murder and posted on Facebook that he had closed a deal and was, quote, expecting a sweet payday for the big man. Like, A, as if that isn't stupid enough, and B, as if it isn't incriminating. Granted, it is vague, but also very, it could be incriminating. It's just such a truly strange and sad story it somehow always comes down to the money. Like, so many times in these cases, the motive is insurance, uh, life insurance policies. <sighs> Unreal. And people will be driven to kill for money. Victoria's colleague, Kendall Bard, would say that, quote, Tim is just evil. Only a twisted person could pull off something like this. He has no soul. And I think the saddest part of this as well is that Jordan has no parents now. Like, his mom is dead and his father's in prison. Essentially for life, for orchestrating this. So the whole thing is just really sad. Um, and the music industry, the country music industry, lost such a talented individual that had such potential to skyrocket even more and really cement her place in the industry that she loved so much. And that was the story of the death of Veronica Boza and the odd backstory into the premeditation of her death. I actually semi-debated watching the movie, but I don't know. Although Danny DeVito and Billy Crystal sound like a good duo, so I might. All right, now it's time for Murder in a Minute. So TikTok taught me this next story, which is in fact 100% true. And is part of what I will now call the Brynomenon. <laughs> Which I need to come up with by myself. I was washing my hair one day and I was like, oh, that's what I'm going to call it. So 
all these stories of Brian's that fall under, you know, any sort of criminal nature we're putting under the Bry phenomenon. The phenomenon of Brian's. So, Brian Cranston, our favorite science teacher turned meth-making Heisenberg, was actually a murder suspect with his brother in the 70s. Brian and his brother were taking a cross-country trip and to make money, they'd work odd in various jobs in different states. Brian and his brother worked at a restaurant in Daytona Beach called the Hawaiian Inn with a chef named Peter Wong, who Brian really, really did not like. He would say he was miserable, despicable, and that everybody hated him, so it wasn't just Brian. The other employees didn't like Peter either. (laughs) This, I, I can't grasp this. And allegedly, they would sit around and joke about different ways to kill him. Like, imagine being on your, like, 15, 30-minute break, and you're sitting there in the break room with your sandwich, like, okay, your turn. Jill, how would you kill Peter? Brian's suggestion would be they would chop him up and fry him in a wok and make, it's something of the nature of, like, um, oh, it was some Thai dish, and it was, like, you like, pad C, Peter Ew, or something like that, like, something... Like, chop him up and put him in a stir-fry. So, Peter actually was found murdered. And it coincided with Brian and his brother leaving town. This thing, the timing was so odd that police considered them murder suspects because of the timing when they left Daytona and actually put out an all-points bulletin on the brothers on their motorcycles um, since they had left the state in such a, like, a quick fashion. The brothers would eventually then be found innocent, and the real story was that a sex worker picked up Peter, and also Peter was known to carry around large sums of cash, which was kind of odd, but also unfortunately could have contributed to his murder, brought him home where a man was awaiting him, And hit him on the head before stuffing him into the trunk of the car. And I had this thought too, but it did not appear that any of the restaurant employees who joked about killing him were involved. Billy Wayne Wattell would ultimately be arrested for the murder with two unnamed accomplices. He pleaded guilty and will be sentenced to prison where he was later killed. So he, Brian had told this story on a handful of late night shows Um, and I mean, it's one of those things that I think now you kind of have to laugh about. Like, if that happened to me, that would be my next stand-up set. I could. I could make this whole thing about me and make it a stand-up set. Unreal. I really could. Easily could. But I know this one's a little short, but I know we've been doing a lot of full-length episodes, so I wanted to kind of keep this not super lengthy. So thanks again for learning with me. And until next week, stay murder-minded. Toodles! And make sure to stay away from Brian's. I'm gonna hit home. Stay. We're not learning anything good. Like, as soon as I was doing the research on this story and found out that this guy's name was actually Brian and not Chris, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Truly, 
it's a brinomenon, I swear, <laughs> I swear to God, it is, and I, I can't understand, oh God, I can't understand why, I don't, I do a whole, I have another episode coming up, um, kind of delving into the research I found from trying to figure out why the brinomenon is a thing, so stay tuned for that, and also, because I'm horrible at keeping surprises, um, I am going to be putting up my stand-up routine at some point because it actually does have to do with, like, true crime and murder in a sense. So I definitely stay tuned for that. I'm really excited. Um, and, yeah. So definitely it'll probably be something more not as, not live because, although that might be kind of odd. So it depends. Maybe... If I'm able to pull the sound from it and the laughs, you know, don't overdraw what I'm saying. <laughs> um, I'll do that. But yeah, definitely. So expect that. Um, it's not a super long set, but I wanted to share it as well. Because um, I'm really, really excited about it. And I'm very, very proud of it. So stay tuned for that as well. And like I said, stay murder minded. Stay away from Brian's. Um and uh don't try to make a deal with the devil and crisscross murder so see you next week with a longer episode but till then bye toodles